Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 335, Distribution, Where Are We? Presented by Scott Morris and Michael Parker. Hi, welcome to the 1.30 Eastern Distribution Where Are We panel. My name is Michael Parker. I am the uh, purchasing manager for ACD Distribution. Uh, also with me on this panel is uh, Scott Morris. Scott, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, my name is Scott Morris. I am a Pisces. I like long walks on the beach. No, I'm kidding. Uh, although I am a Pisces. Uh, I am the uh, board game director for GTS Distribution. So similar type roles, just different titles between what Michael and I do on a daily basis. Uh, awesome. Uh, we're here to kind of give folks that want to know what's going up with board games and, and other distribution elements, uh, kind of an insight as to what we're seeing um, kind of going on uh, during this crazy year and what that might uh, uh, look like. Um, has it been I crazy? I didn't notice. Has it, has it been upside down? <laughs> It has been upside down, inside out, on fire, <laughs> drenched in water, drowning, suffocating, uh, and very successful, I think. is a good Yes. <laughs> also to say. Challenging um, but successful is the, the phrase for sure. Uh, so uh, we basically have kind of three broad topics to, to kind of cover. Um, and uh, then we'll happy to take some questions and answers when we get to that point. Um, uh, Scott, you kind of had some, uh, wanted to go over kind of some just general pros and cons of kind of what we've seen over the last year or so. You kind of want to start on that? Yeah, sure. So if anyone was here last year, um, myself and Mike Pascal from PhD did a very similar panel where we talked about distribution. Uh, and of course, last year, a lot of it was right in the middle of COVID. Um, you know, COVID had started around March or April. We were doing Metatopia about this time last year. And it was still, even at that point, kind of unknown as to what was actually happening. Like, was was Q4 going to be an amazing quarter? Was distribution going to be challenged with stuff? Was just retail in general going to be challenged with stuff? So it's kind of fun to come back here now a year later and be able to talk about what we've seen and, and what's been positive and what's maybe not been so positive on stuff. Um, Michael hit the nail on the head, though, with his comment earlier about demand spiking. Um, it's not just board games. Obviously, all consumer goods have kind of spiked, at least in the Americas, for sure, uh, over the last 12 months. In fact, just over the last maybe two or three weeks, there's been a lot of mainstream media and press around the fact that December is going to be a very challenged time for retail in general, not just board game retail or hobby retail, but just retail in general. And there's a lot of big push to have consumers buying products now, you know, in October when maybe people would normally not be buying until maybe middle of November for the holiday type season. So the demand has definitely spiked. And I think one of the more interesting things to me has been normally a year as a distributor or as a retailer would have these like parabolic curves and you would have these months of really, really high highs and then months of really, really low lows. 
And sometimes they could coincide with the big trade shows, like the big Gamma uh, Industry Trade Show or Gen Con or Essen, because obviously new things would come out, really hot, exciting things would get announced and people would be you know, waiting for those. So you might see a dip down before those new things come out and then those new things come out. They're fireworks. Everyone loves them. They're beautiful and everyone's happy. So it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride. However, at least from my experience in the last year and a half or so, it's been constantly like at the top of the hill. <laughs> um, it, it's sometimes been at the top of the hill with no rails on either side where you feel like you're going to fall off. But it has definitely been a, a really big spike in everything. You know, where uh, while Michael and I deal with a lot of different products, you can break down gaming into board games, miniature games, role playing games, you know, all different types of genres. But everything is really, really spiked, which has been really, really good. I mean, Um, mean, some categories more so than others, but everything has generally been up. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, And I know you had mentioned about, you know, kind of these macro changes, right? The little kind of shifts and moves in the supply chain. Yeah. I mean, and, and something that I observed kind of throughout this year is changes that we're kind of happening now, um, we're seeing, you know, some of it's things that were already trends that are just being accelerated. Um, obviously, uh, over the last 18 months, we've seen a lot more folks flock to uh, online delivery. Uh, so uh, Amazon and uh, other uh, online retailers have seen uh, an excellent growth um, as more people want things delivered to their home, especially when they're no longer feeling safe or if they're in an area that kind of has had, you know, uh, uh, outbreaks. Um, I don't think that that necessarily lessens the desire for a you know, friendly local game store or, uh, and, and obviously at the retail level, the, the spikes are kind of continuing on through, but online has seen massive shifts that, that were the trend, but are now going faster. And the other thing that I've noticed is people, as people are adapting to the change in shipping, the change in timelines, um, a lot of those changes, a lot of people are reevaluating their pricing. A lot of people are reevaluating how they're doing distribution, exactly what methodologies they're using to get uh, products from A to B to C. Um, and, and a lot of those have been long overdue. I, I hold a somewhat controversial opinion uh, that um, games have been underpriced to uh, where they could be in the marketplace for quite some time. And there's a lot of people starting to make moves sure. now that I think are realigning those prices to uh, match the rest of entertainment consumer goods. Yeah, I mean, if I, I just had this conversation with someone the other day about how Puerto Rico is being remade, and I made the comment that, you know, if I bought Puerto Rico in 2008 or 2010, it was $60. And if I buy it now, it's $60. <laughs> so the industry as a whole has not even seen a, a typical inflation curve by any means whatsoever, even though, I mean, prior to COVID, Costs had been rising, obviously, year over year. I mean, I have an old phrase that it, it's expectations always increase, meaning everything is constantly always kind of going up and to the right. Um, this year, it's just been a, a combination. And, and this is on the not so positive side of things. It's, it's been a combination of logistics and shipping costs and the timing involved with having those shipments shipped into different countries, coupled with the fact of component costs going up. And everything has just kind of hit a point where, you know, as a manufacturer of goods, doesn't matter if you're manufacturing board games or you're manufacturing car tires or Nintendo Switches or whatever it is, you want to have a specific markup that makes you your profit and allows you to keep the doors open and the lights on and your employees paid. And when you're a small company, like many board game publishers may be or role-playing game publishers may be, 
that's a pretty thin line sometimes. And yep, it gets to a so. point when situations like this come together in this perfect storm, um, you know, it's, it's not unheard of that you have to look at it and say, okay, you know, my, my game was $20. Maybe now it needs to be $25. Or my game was $60. Maybe now it needs to be $70. Um, and I think for the most part, I don't know, Michael, you can kind of chime in on any conversations you've had with anybody. For the most part, the retailers and the consumers that I've talked to about this understand it, at least in our market from the board game side of things. They they look at it and they say, OK, you know, if I really love a game at $60, I'm not going to like dislike it or hate it at $70. I'm still going to enjoy it. I'm still going to have fun. Right. It's just right. probably going to lean more towards consumers having to be maybe a little more choosy with their dollar. But I don't believe that it's a bad thing by any means whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's the hesitation that I've heard from the publisher side more often than not during this this uh, change during during this uh, you know this reevaluation is if my thirty dollar game goes to thirty five or forty, you know, is is there a significant drop in units that I that 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 is unsustainable to to me, right? Like right. if they need to make the same profit at a higher dollar but lower volume, right? Like all of a sudden that's a that's a downward trend that publishers don't want to uh, to accept um, right. if they can at all avoid it. Um, but I I agree with you that I think from the consumer perspective and from the retailer perspective, at least as it's occurring now, um, those those dips are not necessarily happening. Like you said, there's you know, might be a little more choosy. It might be, you know, it might, the, the dollars might shift around a bit. You're always going to have the publishers that are a little, little lower price just because of the nature of their product and the ones that are a little higher price based on the nature of the yeah. product. So I think some of those consumer demands might shift from one to the other. But I think what we will see in aggregate will be, you know, a general acceptance in the marketplace. For sure. For sure. And I, I'll tell you right now, if you're a publisher listening to this, <clears throat> you're probably thinking to yourself, Maybe I should reach out to Mike and Scott and maybe I should ask them about what's the right number to increase my game by? What's the right percentage or what's the right dollar amount? And I'll tell you right now, none of us know the answer to that. <laughs> only only you know the answer to that because as a publisher... The, the answer is what can you sell it to me for to resell it to the retailer for and we all make our money. That's Exactly. The price. exactly. As, as, a re, as, a, as a publisher, you've got to be able to look at <clears throat> what's my manufacturing cost, what's my landed cost, the landed costs obviously being one of the most biggest impactors right now. I mean, a while back, not even a while back, maybe a year and a half ago, maybe it would cost 75 cents to a dollar to per game to land a game in the United States. Now I've heard upwards of $4 or 350 and that's crazy. Like absolutely crazy, especially quadrupling of the landed of the landed cost adder. I know. And I, I, I tell you, my heart goes out. If you're a Kickstarter publisher and your whole plan was to go to Kickstarter in 2020, make a success and then bring your game to distribution, man, I feel for all of you so much because no one planned for this, right? No one no one could plan for this. This was something that was just an unforeseen circumstance of, of perfect storm situations to get us to kind of where we are. The good thing, though, is I do see a lot of people adjusting. So I, I think it's going to be very interesting to kind of see how these changes kind of affect the future going forward on stuff. I think everybody and their brother knows that shipping and logistics is crazy right now. Um, but, you know, while it may get a little less crazy, it's really more about how do we adapt as an industry. Um, and the other thing I just want to kind of throw this in there, and I, I think I said this last year, too, but. Um, there's no one size fits all as a publisher to sell your game. And what I mean by that is while Michael and I each work at, at two of the largest distributors in the United States, 
um, that's not the only answer, right? The, the market for board games is a little bit of everything. It's part distribution to retail. It's part direct to retail. It's part direct to consumer. It's part online. It's part international. So there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle on things. Um, and, you know, I know Michael is very, very adept at this and myself and even Mike Pascal over at PhD as well. We're happy to kind of help answer kind of questions or anything that anybody has along the way. Uh, one thing I always like to caveat though, we're not here to commit to distribute anything. But we're also not here not to commit to distribute anything, if you know what I mean. So. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of questions, um, do we have any questions from the Twitch chat that uh, uh, follow kind of along this topic while we're here and before we kind of move on? All right. Uh, so the, I think the only other thing that I want to riff on uh, from that from that conversation, um, uh, talking about just kind of the uncertainty and the chaos is, um, I, I think while there's a lot of winners kind of in this space, especially if you manage to, to roll the dice and get, get real lucky either on having inventory or having the right product at the right time, um, that's not going to be true universally. And just to kind of expect that there's going to be some turbulence that happens between now and when this all resolves, um, uh, which maybe sometime next year might carry all the way through next year. It, you know, we might be looking at something that's much more uh, consistent going forward as far as kind of what, you know, what can be expected from the bounds of our uh, uh, logistics channels. But some people m won't survive. I mean, and that's just kind of the nature of it. There's always some publishers that kind of fold up every year for various reasons. And I think we're going to see a, a more turnover than normal, which is unfortunate, but just kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah, I mean, every market evolves, right? Um, it doesn't matter if, again, if you're making tires or board games. Every, everything kind of goes through its expansions and contractions. And this seems to be a bit of a contraction period, even though people are doing very well. Um, obviously, if you're a very large publisher, it's very, well, I won't say very easy. It's easier for you to uh, go a little heavier in your stock and have more availability. Whereas if it was, for example, Michael and I just making a game out of our garage, probably a lot harder for us to say, hey, we were going to print 5,000. Let's print 25,000 and make sure we have enough inventory to sell. Not always in the, the financial plans for everything like that. So I think that, that Michael's exactly correct. We're going to see some, some fall off and some people shifting. May even, in my opinion, see some things where some smaller publishers become more design studios for larger publishers um, and still stay in the industry and be able to, you know, utilize their creativity and, and bring out some great products, just maybe not doing everything themselves as a true traditional publisher, maybe just more as a studio warehouse. So we'll have to see how that works out. Yeah, I've I've been I've been seeing a little bit of that. I think we're just starting to see the the the, the crest of that wave kind of mm -hmm. starting to fall into place. Yep. Excellent. Um, uh, uh, an excellent transition to literally one of the next bullet points on our list. Um, uh, so um, I, I've, I've been trying, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to undercut the doom and gloom that some publishers have been foreseeing because particularly just for their narrow catalog, there can be, there's a lot of pitfalls currently. Um, the buffer that the distribution has always offered and continues to offer is a wide range of choice. I mean, uh, ACD, uh, offers products from 350 plus manufacturers 
um, uh, and GTS has a similarly robust catalog size. Yeah. Uh, so what my expectation has been and, and, and kind of the feedback that I've gotten from my sales team about kind of where retailers are at, the smart ones are doing exactly what people are, are trying to suggest. They're buying product early. Their product mix might be different um, than they want. They may not have the product that they, the exact product that they want, and they may not have the uh, the quantities that they want. But I, 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 as if I'm a retailer and I have an empty shelf, I'm going to fill it with something. Yes, and I think there's some re- unique opportunities in that. You know, um, if I'm a retailer, actually, I just talked to a retailer about two weeks ago. Um, I live in Kansas City now, and I used to live in Austin, Texas. And one of the retailers that I keep in touch with there. He has done so well this past year that he actually rented out the space next to him in the strip mall that he's in, and he uses it purely for inventory. And if you go to the normal, average, everyday, friendly local game store, there's no back room. There's no, there's no storage. The catalog no, is something that doesn't exist. Yeah, it just, you know, maybe there's something behind the counter, but that's about it, right? And boxes that are just being unpacked right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he literally has an entire, like, I think it was like 3,800 square feet just being used as, as inventory. And he says that he's constantly, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. Um, but he made that comment where he said that he's starting to find new things that are, or new things that are new to him. Um, like you said, it may not be the inventory you would want to get, but there's going to be inventory for you to get. And, uh, Michael hit the nail on the head, you know, distribution's advantage from a retail perspective is that uh, if I'm a retailer and I only wanted to buy like three copies or four copies of a specific game, that's going to be really expensive for me to go to the publisher and buy directly and ship, especially now with the, the deals with shipping costs and everything else being a challenge. But it's also not really optimal from a management perspective. You know, if I'm a small publisher or mid-sized publisher, it takes a lot of time to create an order, put that order in, make sure that retailer's paid. It's just, it's a lot of legwork on stuff. Whereas if they come to distribution and they want to order four of your game and four of another publisher's game and six of another publisher's game and 12 of another publisher's game, they can aggregate all that together, which is a really big advantage for them. And most of us have, you know, minimum shipping thresholds to get free shipping and most every retailer pushes for stuff like that to and they're they're very reasonable on stuff for that but i do think that there will be individual cases of publishers having challenged inventory at certain times of the year um obviously as the port of los angeles gets even more and more congested and becomes like a connect the dot picture with boats out you know parked in the bay out there um, in fact, you should do that on your your map there, Michael, in the back. Just like put little little dots off the port of LA yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I think as that becomes more congested, that will become more challenges for individual publishers. But I think from a retail perspective and from a distribution perspective, we will be healthy on on inventory and be able to support what the needs are. I think the creative thing is going to be retailers being able to understand what their consumers want. And being able to get those things from distribution, because just like in my role, you know, as, as a person who manages our partner management and, and works with our publishers to bring our, our products into our catalog, I don't necessarily look at games and say, oh, I love that game. We should carry it because what Scott likes to play versus what's actually going to sell are two totally different things. And I think the retailers are going to have a similar type of thing where they look at it and they go, well, I'd really like to stock X, 
but I can't get X, so I have to figure out what is in demand so I can go get Y and have that be available for my distributor. So I think that'll be an interesting challenge. An interesting, an interesting thing that uh, that I'm I'm wondering to see if it shakes out. One of the things that I've been suggesting to publishers uh, as I've been having these conversations throughout the year is um, 2019, 2020, even 2018, all unprecedented numbers of board game releases. Yes. Right, each each year significantly more games released than the year before. Um, many many of which had a small splash and may still have catalog inventory. Uh, my suggestion to publishers that have stock of something available to ship, whether that's with a distribution partner or directly to a retailer or in your online store, focus your marketing efforts on th- on your your A minus titles from 2020 2019. Yeah. Um, uh, and those can be your holiday sellers because they're there. Reliability uh, and availability are going to be the keys for distribution and retail going into Q4 and Q1 of next year. And those are really good opportunities, too, because a lot of games, I've talked to a lot of people who have missed out on a lot of things in 2020 because there was so much from a retail perspective to do. They had to, you know, put together their P3 loans and work with paperwork with the government. And I mean, just to keep the lights on and the doors open was a chaos circus all in itself. Flinders on with retailers. Yeah, so there there have been a lot of things that have come out in late 2019 to 2020 that may have gotten passed by. And that that's where I think the new-to-me opportunity is going to be really, really big because there's a lot of really good games that have come out in that time frame. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, one of the things that I always, always stress with our publishers is communication and open communication. Meaning if you're getting short on stock on a product, make sure all your distribution partners know about it and that we can either make last time purchases of the product or we can at least inform retailers and keep them educated. Um, that tends to be a fluid thing right now, because as you can imagine prior to all the chaos, it was pretty easy to say, hey, container got picked up in China on this date. We expect it to be in port on this date. We'll expect it to be with you by X date. All that was very easy. Now, it's, uh, it, it's a crapshoot, in all honesty. <laughs> I, I know some partners who have been waiting since June to get product out of China, just physically onto containers and get it out. I've seen people get things out pretty quickly and then have it sit in port. Um, I have one partner who has two containers sitting in the port at Tacoma, just waiting like to get unloaded. And that's not even a port that you're hearing a lot about in terms of congestion or, or busyness and anything like that. So um, it, it's definitely a fluid conversation. But keeping as much open communication with your channels and with your partners is going to help because at the end of the day, one of the most important things to me, apart from obviously providing good games for retailers to be able to sell, is having the right information and having enough information for them to be able to make important decisions and educated decisions on. So communications is very key in this type of environment. Yep, I was just gonna say I lost you on mute, I think. Not still gotcha. But now, there you go. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I one hundred percent what Scott said. The uh, um, uh, just the, the 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 shifting timelines. Um, and to add on to that, I think um, a, a lot of people are finding new ways to do what they've been doing for a long time, and and that is leading to a great deal more uh, 
misses, right? There's a much greater margin of error um, than there has been previously. One of the things that I've been experiencing quite a bit is just um, split shipments uh, and and things where I'm expecting X and I get half of X and the other half is lost in time and space. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe it'll show up next week. Maybe it doesn't show up and it's lost and gone forever. Uh, so, um, I mean, at, at least... At least as far as, you know, we've been we've now been in this for several months and I wouldn't call old hat, but it is it is no longer something that I am losing sleep over. I I, I do and I find what I can fix and then, you know, uh, move on and make sure that uh, everyone through the line up and down knows, Okay, this is my status on this. So I'm you know, I I am hoping that there is just a greater level of understanding about the chaos that currently exists and and giving everyone a. a little bit more slack than they normally would. I mean, and that's kind of hopefully up and down the the entire chain, you know, retailer all the way up to publisher. Yes, being being kind is a free action. So yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, also is crying, which is also happening a lot recently. So <laughs> yes, it's it's yeah, as you said, there are there are a lot of sleepless nights on on different things. You know, there there's there's a lot that goes into this, right? The, Michael and my's job are not just hey, that game looks cool, let's buy it, like. I wish it was. That would be amazing if that's all it was. But, you know, we're we're kind of jack of all trades and masters of some. You know, we are logistic experts. We're logistic managers. We are shipping and importer of record receiving managers. We, we fill out spreadsheets all the time. We make marketing plans. We make marketing timelines. We work with multiple different, you know, facets inside of our company, right? So I've always looked at what I do, and, and Mike, you might agree with me or not on this, but I've always looked at what I do as kind of like the product group for GTS, right? It's my job to work with the partner managers, find the right games, find the right products, but also advise them and, and give them insights as to what I'm seeing in the market space for us with what retailers are asking for. Um, and then on top of that, it's all the other fun stuff of logistics and management and all those other things. And when you have so many balls in the air like that, it becomes a circus to kind of keep them juggling. And yep. when, when things get even the most minimal impact of things, right? If you were to say, hey, the boat landed and we think it's going to be able to be released in three weeks and you announce that and you don't tell your distributors and then the retailers start calling saying, well, they said it was going to be released in three weeks and we're like, we don't even have it yet. We're not sure what's going on. And you know, when you, when you get into gaps like that in the communication, that's where some challenging things can happen. So um, it's it's a hard position to say, all the time, like, hey, you know, buffer and put in as much kind of leeway as you can. But, you know, as those things come up, like I said, communications is just key to being able to keep the partnerships as strong and healthy as possible. Yep, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100%, although my analogy is always spinning plates as opposed to juggling. But, you know. Sure, same, same stress. <laughs> same difference. <laughs> um, uh, you, you were speaking about marketing plans a second ago, and I think that's a transition into uh, talking about kind of where marketing and the marketplace are, which is another, which is, you know, another role that we, that we help facilitate is, is helping communicate to the retailers as effectively as possible, what your product is, how it's coming, all of those types of things. And, um, it it has been challenging to say the least uh, that all of this logistics changes has also affected all marketing plans forever. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, if I had a game that I was anticipating to release in June and I had my marketing all staged for it, 
um, and it gets delayed until August or September, well, my marketing plans that were set for a product that was arriving in June are no longer relevant for a product that I'm not going to get for three more months. So um, uh, something that we have been seeing, uh, kind of a a twin uh, uh, experience that I've been seeing is that um, uh, there's a lot of marketing limbo on the publisher side about how to effectively communicate about a product that I don't have any dates or, or, you know, or updates on, but still wants to generate buzz, but you can't keep the hype train going indefinitely. So how do you balance that with, um, the, the other side of the coin is, you know, a little bit similar to what I think folks experienced in 2020, um, 2021 retailers are, I wouldn't call it heads down because they're paying more attention, uh, to things than they were in 2020 when it was absolute chaos, but Mm-hmm. Their, fo- their their focuses and priorities are different, so they may not necessarily be paying attention in the same ways, or they may not be looking for the same types of promotions, or they may not be trying to take advantage of the same type of opportunities that they were in a in tw- you know from 2019 2018. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of new questions that I mean, if I had a silver silver bullet answer for, I would be sure to provide <laughs> it to anyone who asked. But it's it's like Scott said, communication, just trying to figure it out and make the best plans that you can. Um, the one, yep. the one suggestion that I can, uh, provide is whatever your efforts are on end consumer marketing, those sh- like you should redouble down on those efforts. Um, because when you have product available and you can sell it and, a, and, a and a, a consumer can buy it, whether that's from the FLG, from your direct store, from your Amazon partner or what have you, like that pull marketing is still the most reliable way to, to get product through all channels. Yeah. I've seen some interesting things happening and how people are attacking that. Um, you know, one of the bigger challenges we've kind of run into is there's been some publishers that have tried to do uh, early releases for brick and mortar stores or storefront stores. Um, and they'll normally do like maybe like a two week gap, right? Like they'll, they'll bring in their games. They'll say, okay, uh, storefront stores can sell it on the first. And then all other general retailers, online retailers can sell it on the 15th. Um, and that's been a challenge because there's been such a, a gap in the time of this product being paid for and leaving the manufacturer in China to going through its cycles at the congested ports to getting in that even though it doesn't seem like too long of maybe like 14 or 15 days, that's quite a bit in terms of the cash flow and it can, it can impact people pretty heavy. So I've seen that be a marketing thing that we've actually seen people kind of move away from um, and shifting more towards kind of release upon receipt type thing. Um, You know, we, it's interesting to me because um, and this this may be you know faux pas to talk about or anything, but I have no problems with it. Um, you know, when you look at products in the board game and role playing game world in general, and this is a very general statement, they really don't necessarily need a street date because we're not talking about things that have a lot of third party aftermarket stuff, right? Um, maybe you could say that with Kickstarters and people buying into big Kickstarters and trying to resell them on, you know, eBay or things like that. But when it comes to a general hobby release of a game product, that's generally not what's happening. Now, if you do have something that's like, you know, a Heroclix type thing or a trading card game type thing, something that has any kind of inherent third party increase in value afterwards. Yeah, those things definitely do do well with street dates. Ironically, the reason that I always recommend to our publishers to set hard street dates with their products is actually to keep everyone on an even playing field across all their distribution partners. 
Um, it's very, very few people will actually use exclusivity in distribution. From time to time, there is the right answer, and they it usually is a business fit as to why that happens. But in general, a publisher of board games or role-playing games is going to use two, three, maybe even upwards of sometimes five different distributors. And there can be a lot of challenges from a retailer's perspective and from their point of view if one distributor has product before another, even if that may only be one day or two days. So I've seen some things happen where people have come in and said, okay, we're going to have a ship date which is a new term that some people are using where they say, we're gonna send this to all of our distributors and you as distributors can't ship it until X date. That way they buffer in a little bit of time of like a three or four day period to where Michael and all of ACD's locations get it and maybe they get it a day or two before us or a day or two after what we get at GTS. But if we're all operating on the same day that we can ship out to retailers, then we keep that on an even playing field. Or at least having a street date, if you say, hey, this is going to ship to you on the 1st, and then the 16th is the street date, that allows the retailers to get it whenever it may be. Maybe they get it you know, on the 13th from GTS and the 14th from ACD or whatever it may be, but they know to stick to that hard date of the street date for things. So I think having those dates helps keep things a little more organized, both from the front end with the retailers and having them you know, merchandise it to consumers, but also on the back end to keep your distributors on an even playing field, which is very, very healthy for everybody across the board. I have two quick add-ons to kind of uh, just elaborate on that. And I, and, and I agree pretty much 100% with what Scott said. Um, I, think, I think that there is a scale uh, uh, component to it as well. Um, a, a smaller release uh, doesn't necessarily have the same impact, especially from a street date perspective. I mean, and we're talking on, on all facets, right? Like logistically, it's smaller uh, and therefore requires less handling time, both in warehouse and to get out to a retailer. Additionally, there's just fewer eyeballs on it, and therefore the 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 strict need for a level playing field doesn't necessarily come into play in the same way that a collectibles or the next Gloomhaven, where, where everyone's going to really want it at the same time just to keep everyone on an even keel. Um, the the other thing that I uh, wanted to kind of say is that it also street dates also help retailers. Um, keep an eye on what is coming and when they should have it. Obviously, dates are kind of like a constantly changing thing, especially now, even in even prior to kind of the the current chaos that we're all in. You know, uh, every so often, you know, dates would slide, um, which is which which any retailer who's been doing it for any number of time, you know, kind of knows that's kind of to be expected in part and parcel. But if they if if something has just a release on receipts. With their uh, with with all of their distributors, it has a chance of getting overlooked just because there wasn't a hard date that a retailer needed to pay attention to. So right. uh, yeah. it's it's one thing that just helps keep uh, uh, manages everything kind of like all the information through the chain. When there's a hard date, that date you know may change, but will continue to be a hard date. Yeah, and I can't stress this enough. You know, while while Michael's company and my company are competitors and, and all the distributors are technically competitors competing to provide stuff to retailers, um, we all want to provide the same information. So when you have information about, hey, this date's changing or this date needs to update or I need to, to shift this, I, there is no harm foul whatsoever in just sending a blanket mass email to all your distribution partners saying the exact same thing because there's nothing worse than you know sending an email and then maybe changing one thing in it or tweaking something that maybe provides different information or a different way to interpret the information and you end up with 
one distributor having X set of data and one distributor having like X prime data and then confusion is abound. So keep keeping that as clear as possible is important. Absolutely. Um, anything else you wanted to kind of dig into on kind of the, how those changes are, you know, currently affecting kind of the, the throughput to retail? Yeah, in terms of throughput to retail, I think we've covered quite a bit of it. You know, I think for me, the, the big thing is a lot of people have, have juggled the the plates or spun the balls or whatever <laughs> analogy you want to use. Um, you know, they, they've kind of gotten into a mode where they're looking forward now. And I think that's where I am, too, is kind of where where do we see things going from here, right? We know container prices are high. And like you said, they may continue on through most of 2022, if not all of 2022. I think there's some people who have a little bit of a false hope that everything is going to like hit the reset button at Chinese New Year in February. And I think that's great to hope for that and wish for that. And I would too, but um, just don't see that happening, right? You know, I, I, I also do not. The earliest that I could see any shifts truly happening are middle of next year. And that is yeah. going to be affecting containers coming in for Q4 2022. So we won't actually start seeing a lot of impact to retail until maybe Q4 next year, but realistically Q1, Q2 of 2023. I would agree with that. Yeah. I think 2022 is going to be very similar. I, I don't think we'll see as high of costs as we have recently. You know, I've kind of, um, I've kind of attributed what's been happening with the shipping and logistics costs similar to the spike in gas prices decade ago, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, when gas jumped up, everyone immediately freaked out. And I remember people were like, oh, is it going to be $4? Is it going to be $5? Like, what's it going to hit? Um, and then it came down and it slowly started kind of weed its way back down. But it never really went back down to what it was, right? Gas was like, you know, $1.70, $1.80, then it started spiking, and then it came down, and it kind of was like $2.20, $2.30. I think the same thing is what we'll see. And, and mind you, this is just Scott Morris's opinion. This is not any professional, like, I have a logistics degree or anything type stuff. Um, and I sure don't know the secrets, because if I did, I'd be unloading a lot of those containers right now. But I, I think that if you look at the you know, a year and a half ago, or even a year ago, uh, you know, shipping container, a 40-foot container would be $5,000. And now you're talking $20,000, $25,000. You know, I'm a big believer in the phrase, the answer is kind of in the middle. And I think that that's where we're going to see things kind of shake itself down. Once it finally does get to a whatever the new normal may be, I think you'll see, you know, $5,000 containers are a thing of the past, um, which I think is going to you know, even if it's ten to fifteen thousand dollars a container, I think it's going to force people to make some changes to their operations, to force them to make some changes into what they do from a game perspective. Because, you know, honestly, um, there's some companies that have lived very well off the last decade or so by taking flyers on games, where they look at something and they say, "Hey, that's kind of cool. That, that might work." And they have enough money from maybe a foundation game or an evergreen game where they can turn around and say, okay, let's print 2,500 of these or 3,000 of these and see how they work. Because it wasn't that expensive. But now with those costs being so high, I think it's going to be a lot more picky and choosy for what people do with things like that. Yeah, the only the only thing that I would kind of add is, um, I mean, uh, uh, I, I've, I've talked to some people who were getting quoted 
significantly higher prices than Scott mentioned a moment ago. The the worst quotes that I've heard are upwards of forty thousand, depending Ooh. on whether whether you had. I mean, and to a, set, a certain extent, it's all about the relationship with the broker and the forwarder you're working with. And if you didn't have those relationships, you were at the back of the line and top of the pay scale. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I I I do not imagine that those are prices are going to. Uh, uh, stay at those high levels. I think that we will see them somewhere between ten and twenty as the level out price. When we get yeah. to that point, I don't know. Um, but I, you know, we're we're going to continue to see the hopefully things level out um, along those lines. And uh, forty is a lot, man. Forty is a lot. <laughs> forty I, is a lot. I mean, you were, you were talking and... earlier about people that were having trouble getting their product out of China. There are people who are having trouble justifying the cost to get their product out of China, regardless of whether yeah. they could even find a container. Yeah, I uh, the, the highest I've heard to date so far was about thirty four, thirty five thousand. I did have one partner who, unfortunately, uh, his shipment was small and it was only fitting inside a twenty foot container. And the we went to I, th- I think we tried to help them. Uh, close to like six different, seven different, you know, shippers and logistics companies. And one guy flat out told me, he said, man, I don't care if you're shipping the Ark of the Covenant. I don't have a 20 foot container. <laughs> I was like, what if, what if it is the Ark of the Covenant though? <laughs> I was like, so, yeah. I mean, the, na- the name of the game is the Ark of the Covenant. How could you pass on that? Right. That's right. Yeah. It's going to be phenomenal. Look for it in stores next holiday. Right. <laughs> so, um, Something that you had mentioned in our kind of pre-conversation was the nature of games to a certain degree, I think, also will evolve. And I I think that's something that is absolutely true, where um, uh, we had seen a trend uh, basically in the late 20-teens for these big box experiences, right? Big miniatures, um, big boxes filled with a lot of air, lots of room for expansion. Um, Yep, exactly. Uh, I think we're going to see... A lot of people either repackaging their product or yeah. or just designing their product in a lot more in the Munchkin size or the Silver Line uh, yeah. size box. Um, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of ten by tens and a lot of a lot of twelve by twelves and a lot of eight by fives. Yeah, I, I think you know that that's definitely something that will be beneficial for everybody. And I don't I don't know if everyone really understands how beneficial that can be. I always kind of joke. You know, I have over 900 something games just in my own personal collection of my house. And it's always like a game of Tetris trying to put things on my shelf, right? It, it's what fits. Well, this box is not this size and that's, you know, kind of off and everything. There's no standardization whatsoever in, in the industry when it comes to box sizes. And a lot of times the box sizes are being the decisions on what size are being made because of the specific some specific component that has to take up a certain amount of space usually a board or maybe player boards or something along those lines but when you look at something that is let's let's just say you looked at something that was in like the size of a box like carcassonne and you look at what's inside of it and what physically actually like you could condense it down to and if i'm a publisher with a game that size and I could potentially take that down from a carcassonne size box to a munchkin size box, maybe knock 15, 20% off the size of the box itself, still probably be able to keep it at the same SRP and be able to fit more units on the boat or on the container. That's going to be a financial gain for the publisher for sure. But even yep. more so, it becomes a gain on the distribution side and the shipping side both for your distribution partners and for you shipping that product out. 
because your box is smaller, your box is denser, you're gonna be able to fit more into a box or into a case to be able to ship out. The dimensional shipping weight in distribution is a killer right now. You know, if you were to look at just a 12 by 12 by 12 square box and you fill that with trading card game product versus you fill that with board game product, the amount of difference in those two things is gigantic. I mean, in terms of like how much yeah, product from value, yeah, from a value per square foot, 100%. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the publishers getting denser on their box is actually going to be a much healthier thing for the industry overall. Uh, I mean, honestly, just as a fan, just as a consumer, there's nothing more frustrating to me than being able to open a game that's like the size of Carcassonne and then looking at it and going, wow, this fits in the deck box. <laughs> like, I could, like I could condense this down to, to fit inside of this, right? That's that's something I think that people are going to have to look at for sure. I mean, there there used to be a, a fairly standard when I was at my retail store about like, oh, does this pass the heft test, right? Do, do you feel good picking it up? And I think we are going to get a lot more games that are denser and for their size definitely pass that heft test, but maybe in a much more compact size. Yeah, and I, I do think that you know, like you mentioned about uh, the big box experience type thing, I think that will still continue, but I think that that will continue from a uh, crowdfunding perspective. Because when you look at the the volume throughput that retailers work with, even with something as big and as popular as a Gloomhaven, most retailers don't want to stock and carry a $140, $150, dollars game sitting on their shelves. Because at the end of the day, they're so not carrying a game. Yeah, yeah. If they do, they have maybe one and, and that's it, right? Like most of my local stores will have like one Gloomhaven, right? Or one Too Many Bones or something like that. But they're generally not stocking three or four even of those things. And and there's a primary reason for that, right? It's a, it's a big amount from a cash flow perspective for a retailer to put out on several units like that. It's a lot of retail space that they could be putting a lot of different games in there. And, and again, dimensionality, be able to sell a lot more smaller games than one bigger game. Um, and I think that that I think that that experience will still continue and it'll be there for a crowdfunding perspective. I think the really creative thing that's going to come out of that is the people that will really exceed like past the million dollar Kickstarter thing. If I got a bloated game with a bunch of minis are going to be the people that can not only deliver that product, but also look at how can they deliver a similar gaming experience to a retail consumer who may not be involved at all with crowdfunding whatsoever and be able to provide a product. And you notice I'm not saying game, provide a product to the retailer that is going to be a good value for them to invest in and a good object for them to be able to resell to their consumers that'll be in demand. Because that's where I think you'll really kind of have the magic come together. I mean, I've seen a handful of, of people experimenting with deluxe editions versus the retail edition of products on a Kickstarter. And I think sure. we're going to continue to see, I think we're going to continue to see that where, you know, you might get the big box experience if you back the Kickstarter, but that's going to be decoupled a lot, you know, with whatever their distribution looks like, where maybe you don't get, uh, maybe there isn't an expansion pack that has all of the minis at distribute or at yeah. retail, or things like that, or the, the, retail size box doesn't have all of the deluxe tchotchkes or things like that, but it's still a good game experience. Like you said, it's the product that's right for the space. And I'll tell you, I mean, it's, we tend to, I mean, anybody just as a human being, you tend to live in a bubble sometimes um, where you just, you, you know, your world and everything about your world and that's all you think and see and that's it. But it's pretty amazing to me how many people are in the board game hobby, but don't even know what Kickstarter is. 
don't even know what crowdfunding is. You know, even when we see products or projects that have 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 backers, you think to yourself, wow, that's amazing. I mean, some board game publishers don't even print 4,000 copies of their games. And these guys have 15,000 backers just from this one game. And I still, even just as recently as last week, I there's a, a couple that we know here locally who are great friends of ours. And we have played games like for a very long time and, and enjoyed playing multiple different types of heavy and light strategy games. And I made a comment about receiving a Kickstarter. And uh, the husband went, what's Kickstarter? <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. How do you know? what kickstarter is we've played this and this and this and this and he's like no i didn't realize that i thought you just picked them up from you know a local retailer or something and he mentioned about how he always goes to a local retailer yeah it's it's pretty comical and i i I think that that's you know back to my earlier comment about how there's no one size fits all um if you if you think that you're just going to live on kickstarter yes you could be very successful with that but there's so much more than than just crowdfunding. Just like there's there's so much more than just being in distribution. There there is a very very big market out there for board games, and there is a lot of opportunity. And I think it's just a matter of doing the right things for your product and for your consumer base and your community to get that magic happening. Where, like Michael said, it doesn't matter if you're going to a retail store or online or Amazon, as long as they know about your game and they know to seek out your game that's where you can start to have the magic happen. And then working with the right partners, you're doing the consumer marketing, you're making the awareness, while us as the distributors are working with the retailers to make sure they're aware they can get the game from us. That way, when someone walks in and says, hey, I want to get the new whatever, zombie werewolf mermaid game that is awesome, like they're, they're going to go, oh yeah, I need to go call ACD or I need to call GTS or I need to you know call my partner to get that. So that that's where the magic comes together. Um, I think there's, yep. Uh, I, I I think there's one more piece that I want to that I want to touch on um, before we kind of open the floor to to questions, and that's you know we focused a lot on kind of board games, and that's what a lot of that's what a lot of the communications happening. But obviously, as we said, kind of at the top, this is kind of happening very wide to a great deal. And and um, the thing that I will point out is that if you have the ability to to either make domestically because you're doing a role-playing book or it's a really small card product or things like that where um, you can get a faster turnaround. Obviously, there is some competitive advantage and opportunity that can have to you. But also, um, if your partners uh, are in Europe or if you're a European uh, a publisher looking to get things across, um, that that is less cha- – there's still challenges, but it is less challenging uh, in the current environment. And there's a lot of – I think there's a lot of opportunity for categories that focus in that space, whether they be collectibles or smaller card games or um, RPGs, book publishing. I mean, there's a paper shortage going on now, so there's an entire separate section of of challenges along those lines. But I've had significantly fewer delays with my folks that print in Canada or print in Estonia or print in Germany and their product being more readily available than, uh, you know, their counterparts that are printing in China. Um, do we have any questions from the chat that we haven't covered? (laughs) 
I think the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. So, unfortunately, coming online is is a good way of putting it because it is yeah. slow. I was reading some articles and estimates that that um, to replicate large swaths of what Chinese manufacturing has gotten to over the last three decades after we have offshored most of it, um, we're talking you know between a, a two and five year turnaround for the largest players to get yeah. anywhere near the same volume or quality. So this is not a quick fix, but there is some there is some manufacturing and publishing that never left. Book publishing is an mm-hmm. example where just based on the the goods and the weight density, it still makes a lot of sense to print um uh somewhat domestically especially for smaller things or uh uh you know depending on how you model your pricing. Similarly, there is still domestic manufacturing for some cardboard and cards so if you rely on plastic pieces you're a little sol on on kind of just the component nature of of the product but uh, on the flip side the reports that i've heard from people that have already been partners is those uh those partners are also over capacity for a great for with a backlog for a great deal of time so um the pivot will not be quick yep no you nailed that 100 percent on the head (laughs) that's perfect What's Magic the Gathering? I haven't heard of that. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, pret- I, I don't expect any disruptions. I mean, I don't think anyone expected where we are right now as a as an industry as a whole. But um, Wizards of the Coast is one of the largest companies in the industry. Uh, I think they have a very good pedigree and a very good team there, and I think they've done a very good job of kind of pushing through the the challenges that the industry has had and, and adapting to new stuff in the future. So I'm not personally looking at anything or know of anything that could, you know, be any kind of concern there. To speak to the kind of the question more broadly, I mean, uh, I, I would go further to say magic and collectibles are the backbone of a lot of stores because there are there are communities within uh, there are communities within that that are less magic, more Pokemon or less Pokemon, mm-hmm. more Yu Gi Oh. Um, but you know, if you were to take those that category as an aggregate, the majority of those publishers have a large component of their uh, supply chain fairly well siloed and fairly domestic. So. Mm-hmm. Um, while we've been seeing unprecedented demand that has led to a lot of delays on that side, it is a lot less because that their product is stuck in China and a lot more of that they just can't print enough. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think kind of all sectors along the collectibles and is still ripe for some good, good elevated growth ongoing. Um, and uh, to a certain degree, uh, uh, the rising tide will lift all products. Yeah, in a way, we're kind of seeing almost like a new golden age for trading card games. I remember in the the mid-90s, late 90s, after Magic had come out, and everyone was trying to kind of hop on that board. Um, I I used to tell people that I was a serial TCGist because I would just jump from one to the next one and collect a little bit and then have it in the, the back corner of some boxes and stuff like that. But right now, there's just so many good trading card games that are, just regardless of the situation we're in from a business perspective, 
they're just good products and they're really good games that have really strong communities. I think that most of the the companies out there, you know, you look at things like Flesh and Blood or the Dragon Ball Z trading card game, they're really they've learned how to work with their communities and focus on their communities, not just keeping the community intact, but growing that community as well. And I think everyone's done a really, really good job with it. So it's actually been really exciting to see that part of the business grow. One of my favorite things that happened this year was I was actually at a local retailers and we were talking about Pokemon being hard to get and how it was very challenging at the time. And he said, I I tell you, Scott, everybody that walks in here wants Pokemon. And no sooner did he put the period on that sentence that a woman walked in the door and the first thing out of her mouth, do you guys carry the Pokemon trading card game? <laughs> and I was like, yep, you are not wrong, my friend. <laughs> awesome. Andy, do we have any other questions? Okay. Great. You want to start it off, Scott? Sure. Yeah. Um, really easy. So you can find out about my company at gtsdistribution.com. Uh, you can find me, uh, shoot me an email anytime. Happy to answer any questions. It's just S Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S at gtsdistribution.com. Uh, I'm on social media pretty much everywhere, but mostly I would say Twitter. Uh, I'm at Crits Happen on Twitter. So feel free to reach out anytime. Uh, and I've been Michael Parker with ACD Distribution. You can find more information about ACD at acdd.com. Um, we have a, a contact us form there for retailers and publishers. If you're a new re- if you're a new publisher and you're uh, looking to get your game evaluated for distribution or just looking to have some questions, we have a, a, a new suppliers email, which is new suppliers at acdd.com. Um, and that goes to me or another member of my team to hopefully get you some information. Great. Anytime. I hope it was educational and I hope everyone has a great weekend. Yep, absolutely. Enjoy everyone. Enjoy the rest of your show.